A week ago, I had the privilege of meeting with our deacons. We had about 135 of our servant leaders meet together. And we had a great time together talking about ministry and surrounding our hearts around the purposes of Christ. And I shared something with them just in humor on that day that actually, the more I thought about it, illustrates some places that we need to look into today. So if, you're, if you were there last week, you know what I'm going to read. Just hold on, because I think it's worth reading again. You know, you get these uh, things, emails the, um, uh, on the Internet uh, uh, that are supposed to be funny. And about one out of 30 actually are. Well, this is one of those. Uh, these were actual instructions on uh, store products. Actual labels that showed up. This was on a Sears hair dryer. Do not use while sleeping. On a bag of Fritos. You could be a winner. No purchase necessary. Details inside. Wouldn't that be great in 7-Eleven? I just want to see if I'm a winner. I'm just going to open it up. And... On a bar of dial soap, directions, use like regular soap. This was on a Swanson frozen dinner. Serving suggestion, defrost. Tesco's tiramisu dessert. This is printed on the bottom of the box. Do not turn upside down. This is on Marks and Spencer bread pudding. Product will be hot after heating. On a package of, uh, excuse me, on the packing for a Rowenta iron. Do not iron clothes on body. This is on um, Boots Children's Cough Medicine. Children's Cough Medicine says, Do not drive a car or operate machinery. On Nitol Sleep Aid, warning, may cause drowsiness. Now, some of these things are, are foreign items that we've brought over, and the translation was so literal that it didn't quite transfer over. This is on a Korean kitchen knife. Warning, keep out of children. <laughs> This is on a string of Chinese-made Christmas lights for indoor or outdoor use only. Now, if there's another use, I'm really curious. This is on a Japanese food processor, not to be used for the other use. <laughs> on Salisbury's peanuts, warning, contains nuts. On an American airline pack of nuts, instructions, open packet, Eat nuts. This is my favorite. On a child's Superman costume, wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly. Those are fun. And some instructions seem so obvious that it seems no one could possibly misunderstand them. They're so clear, they're so obvious, you couldn't miss it. That's exactly what's happened when it comes to men and women's roles, especially as we close out this decade and this century and this millennium. It is amazing to me the confusion that's out there on who a man is to be and who a woman is to be, and yet the Word of God, as we said in the last few weeks, is so clear. God does not have a speech impediment. He was very clear in what He meant, very clear on who we're to be, and all we need to do is open up His book and see what He has for us there. Even more specifically, though, is the role of a woman has been under particular attack. The feminist agenda has made it an issue of identity and of being rather than of roles. They've created such a stir of emotion and such confusion of the real issues, it's hard to see through what they have to say to the real issues. More times than not, I think that what the Bible says regarding the role of a woman is so misunderstood that the simple words like worker at home or submissive to her own husband have been so weighted down with baggage but that by the time you actually open the Bible and read, you can't read with the Holy Spirit's guidance. We bring so much of our own understanding to that, it's hard to see what the Lord actually has in the text. Well, we're going to unpack that a little bit more this morning. So take your Bibles and turn back to Titus 2. This began some few weeks ago, uh, as a study on uh, relationships and romance, following up our uh, study in Ecclesiastes, and I had planned for it to be about two or three weeks, and um, it might be when we get to the relationship part of it. But we said what we need to do first is kind of clear the decks and set the 
stage and find out who we're to be. Because I'm convinced if you're who you need to be as a woman, looking for what is right in a man, process won't matter. If you're who you are to be biblically as a man, looking for the right kind of woman, the process won't matter. You can talk about dating and courting and arranging and internet and mail order wives or whatever you want to, and it won't matter if you are who you need to be because you'll make the right decisions regarding yourself and your supposed mate. Well, in Titus 2, we've picked this passage out because it's specifically geared to younger men and younger women. The whole context here is the order of roles in the church. Older men and older women and who they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do. And then he turns to the younger men and the younger women in Titus 2 and says, here's who you're to be, what you're supposed to do, how you're to function in yourself with each other, how you're to function with a spouse. So there's no confusion at all. The confusion becomes the baggage we bring to the text. Meaning, do we really believe that God said what He means and means what He said? It really comes down to that. It's not a hermeneutical issue, it's a faith issue. Do you believe that the Bible says what it means and means what it says, and it was actually a supernatural document written by a sovereign God through 66 books for our understanding today, not just millennia ago? Well, let's jump in. We've decided to kind of tackle this a little piece at a time, and we've uh, arranged it around qualities of a righteous woman to both realize, if you're a woman, this is who you're to be, and to recognize if you're a man, which is what you're supposed to look for. Let's review a little bit. The whole context here, if you look back at chapter three, verse three, rather, says, "Older women, older women, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior." Not malicious gossips or a slave to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women. Stop right there. That's the depth of discipleship we noted. A woman, just as the men we studied a few weeks ago, ought to have a depth of discipleship. In other words, a relationship with older women who have accomplished these godly virtues in their lives. An attachment, a discipleship relationship, a spiritual friendship with someone who can nurture them, who's further around the track than they are. Secondly, it says, teach them, teach the young women to love their husbands. We said that's a love of liking. Now, the reason that's a love of liking is the word love there is the word phileo, not the word agape, which all Christians are commanded to have for both unbelievers and believers. That's a given coming into this text. Paul says, no, you need to learn to like your husband. Have affection for him. Genuinely have care and concern and minister to him. Same word is used in the next characteristic. That's a care for children. A care for children. You need to like kids. And we said that you're not going to do that automatically when you're married and when you have kids. It would be very, very, very wise for you as women to get around other women who have children, to babysit, to spend as much time as you can with them. Gentlemen, you need to as well. I was up to my elbows in ministry this morning before we came here. So terrified I was going to have to change a shirt because of the ministry I was doing this morning with my two-year-old who we're praying will be potty trained soon. It takes skill to be a woman of uh, excellence. It takes skill to be a mother. You don't just learn that because you have a child. You'll be learning that as a single woman you can begin that in your heart and attitude right now by, by serving and learning to like children. Fourthly, the older women are to tell the younger women to be sensible. Teach them to be sensible. And we call that a cultivation of control because the word there, sophroneo, really means self-controlled. They're sensible. They do what makes sense. They stay within parameters. They're disciplined, in other words, exercising self-control. And you as a single woman can exercise great amounts of self-control in those areas where you have control. School, the cleanliness of your dorm or apartment, the... Agenda for your homework and being able to get on top of that. Planning out your quiet times. Planning out your meals. You can begin to have a cultivation of control even now. Fifthly, the older women are to teach the younger women to be pure. And that's to have a passion for purity. A passion for purity. Not just a commitment to purity, but a passion to purity to such extent that you'll remove yourself from any situation that would inhibit your purity in thought or deed. 
And if that means walking out of a movie, turning off the television, or telling the young man that you're with that that doesn't uh, influence your purity, that's what it needs to be. If that means calling your dad in the middle of a date, or your pastor, or your shepherd, or someone, and saying, hey, I'm here, come get me, this guy's not being pure, then you're welcome to do that. I've had that actually happen before. I've had a girl call me and say, hey, I'm, I'm not sure about this guy, what do you think? And he was in the room. So I said, put him on the phone. I said, what are you trying to do? He says, I don't know, things guys and girls do. I said, I'll be right there. What do you mean the kinds of things girls and guys do? If you mean the kinds of things that husbands and wives do, I understand that. But guys and girls are just treat each other as spiritual siblings, 1 Timothy 5.1, which we'll come back to next week. A passion for purity. We also talked about in that passion for purity, being pure in your thinking, in your dressing, your modesty, in your acting, so that girls, you're fostering around you this aura that you're pure and holy and the only way to approach you in any manner, physically, intimately, emotionally, is to marry you. Sixthly, we saw last week and spent the entire time discussing that a woman is to be a worker at home. A worker at home. An oiko, oikos, which is a home. Aragon, worker. Someone who works hard at home. This is, as we said, the bullseye for the feminist agenda. They think this is absolutely subversive. They think it's, it's uh, oppressive to tell women that they're to be a worker at home. Listen, somebody needs to be, don't they? Kim and I were talking about this. Especially when it comes to the raising of children and the influence of children. I shudder to think that my little, my little boys, Luke and John, would, would be at a daycare all day. That maybe their first steps would be seen and helped along by someone not in our family. That maybe their first words, the first time they said something that was really precious or sweet, would be heard by ears other than mom and dad. To think that they're going to fall down and scrape their knees and their elbows and their arms and get the scratches that come with being a little boy. And someone other than their mom is going to come and put the band-aid and a little kiss on it. Listen, I'll work 100 hours a week to give my wife the privilege of being at home with our children. Women, what's your heart with that? Do you long to be a worker at home? Now, let me answer something that uh, I expected a lot more last week than we really got in terms of people questioning uh, what that really means. Several of you came and had a legitimate question I didn't address I want to speak briefly to. And that is, Rick, that's a great thing. That's what I want to be, but I'm a single woman. I'm not dating. How in the world can I long to be a worker at home, which would mean being the wife of a husband, when I'm called in the Scriptures not to initiate that kind of relationship? Doesn't that breed discontent? That's a great question. Let me simply answer that by saying this. Aspiration and longing doesn't have to be pining. Remember that old English word, pining? Uh, uh, remember in the, uh, the Christmas song, in sin and error, pining. Just absolutely longing with all the emotion that you can have. Desire doesn't mean you're pining. And contentment can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We have a whole series on that if you'd like to uh, look at that uh, on tape at the back sometime. What it means is that you're undistracted and you're unhindered. You're undistracted in your devotion to Christ. That'll keep you content. And you're unhindered in your ministry for Christ. If you're, if you're pursuing those two venues, I promise you, ladies, you won't be discontent. Does that mean you won't have... This, this deep down desire to be that? No, that's a good desire. How do you resolve that? Take it to the Lord and say, Lord, I have this desire. Show me who I might serve with this desire. Praying about that. Secondly, you can study about it. Study it. Study what it really means to be a single so that you can capture all that it means to be a single and unhindered, and, uh, unhindered ministry and undistracted devotion to Christ now. Is it wrong to desire that? No, no, not at all. Is it wrong to desire that to the point of being discontent? Yes. You say, Rick, that's a little unfair, telling us we should long to do that, and then I know in a couple weeks you're going to tell, him, tell me that the guy should be the initiator in this relationship. Okay, then here's those, those fateful words you're going to hate to hear, okay? Three words. Just trust God. It comes down to an issue of trust, doesn't it? How many times do we keep coming back to Psalm 8411? No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Is it 84 or 86? 86? 84? 84, 11. 
No good thing does He withhold by, from those who walk uprightly. So if you're walking uprightly, then you can be assured that anything you don't have is something the Lord has not deemed good at that time. Does it mean you should stop your education? Absolutely, absolutely not. You should be a well-educated mom. You should continue being educated as long as you can. Plus, you know, I said last week that it's, it may be a, a potential temptation to think of having something to fall back on if your husband died or something, but that's not a bad thing at all. I know many godly women who have had to uh, go to work after their husbands died for a, a point of time. By the way, gentlemen, can I, can I speak to you very graphically about something? When you're married, one of the first things you should do is pick up your telephone and call the insurance agent and make sure that you have life insurance. When you have children, Kim and I are about to have our third, third child. I've been working for the last few weeks with our insurance agent to make sure our insurance, if something happened to me, is enough that Kim wouldn't have to go to work, that she could stay home. You say, well, that's expensive. Yeah, it is. But it's a priority in our home. I am called by God to protect her role in life, even if that means getting an extra job to pay for it. It's of critical importance, gentlemen, that you're shepherding and holding high a woman's place as the queen of the home. Work or home doesn't mean you stop getting educated. It doesn't mean that you don't have aspirations. It doesn't mean you don't ever work. It just means that you're a worker at home when you're married to such extent that anything, any other time you have, you're welcome to, to work. Uh, we read a statistic last week that about 99 hours a week is what it takes to be a worker at home. If you've got some extra time, hey, have at it. That's wonderful. And let me say this. Kim uh, worked uh, up until we had uh, little Luke, a few weeks before we had Luke. We both worked. She, had, she took care of the home and she could take care of work. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, that difficult. I pitched in and helped her as much as I could. But let me say that when children come, I would almost say in our culture, I'm speaking from experience, not the Word of God here, it's almost impossible for a woman to hold down a career and to be the kind of mother the Scriptures call you to be. So begin thinking about that in terms of your education, in terms of your desires, in terms of your longing. She's to be a worker at home. You say, well, how does all that work out? Well, I can't tell you except to say that the older women are to train the younger women what that means. It's a discipleship relationship. Well, that leads us to our last two characteristics, qualities that we need to cover in this text. One very simple, one a little more complicated. The next one is just the simple word, train them to be, encourage them to be kind. We're going to call this a kaleidoscope of kindness. Why a kaleidoscope? You ever used the kaleidoscope? Luke loves the word. He loves to look in a kaleidoscope. You can take a leaf or something, put it in a kaleidoscope and turn it, and every time you turn it, there's an entire new nuance of, of colors and of varieties and of patterns. It's multi-varied. And that's what this word means. It's one of the most generic words in all of Greek. It's the simple word agathos. It can mean things like this. Being good, being kind, being nice, being pleasant. It carries the idea of being gentle and considerate, amiable, congenial, and sympathetic. It just means basically you're good. You're a nice woman. Now why would Paul insert that into this? Look at the context. Is there a great degree in which you need to be kind to the man you're living with as a, as a wife? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is there a great degree that you need to be kind to the children that God will give you with quite depraved natures? Oh, yes. Is it important that you're going to be, need to be kind in the context of discipleship from an older woman to, uh, older woman to a young woman? Yes. Kindness is that wonderful quality in a girl gentleman that you see and you think she is really sweet she's kind you know the other kind don't you what's the opposite of this it's that woman who's got her eyebrows squinted all the time who's just not pleasant she's just mean you get around her and you think I'd rather be around someone else she's got a scowl on her face she looks at life and says look what life has done to me she's not kind the context here is being kind to her husband and children, but the fuller New Testament implication is to be kind even to those who are your enemies, ladies, and to those who don't deserve it. You say, why? Because the Lord was. Read the book of Romans. It's His kindness to us as sinners that leads us to do what? To repent. 
kindness evokes out of other people a response that's a draw toward godliness and potentially a draw toward the gospel in Christ. God extended His kindness to us in the gospel. And when a woman extends the grace and kindness of her life to those around her who are in her family and even to those around her who are her enemies or who don't deserve the kindness, she's being a refraction and a reflection of the jewel of the gospel. What's your disposition, ladies? Is your reputation that you're kind, you're considerate, you're sweet, you're a servant, you're good, you're gentle, you're compassionate, you're considerate, you're someone people want to be around for those reasons? What's your reputation like? What kind of things do you do that are kind? Do you do kind acts and kind deeds? Do you implement kindness toward people on purpose? Usually we think of being kind as a response. Someone's mean to you at the grocery store, you're going to be kind in return. How about being the initiator and being kind? Finding someone who needs something in in your study and ministering to that need. Finding something that needs to be done and doing it. Being kind. Being considerate. Thinking about others. This is the, the, the supreme jewel and the crown of humility, right? A humble heart expressed itself in kindness. I hope you guys aren't tired of me. And if you are, it doesn't matter. Bragging about my wife. But she's so kind. She does nice things for me. Sometimes she'll make cookies for no reason. (laughs) Praise the Lord. She makes the brownies that I've told you guys before are so good. You can say it with me. They're so good if you put them on top of your head, your tongue will slap your brain silly trying to get after them. She makes them from scratch, and they're wonderful. When I think of kindness, why do I think of food all the time? You know what she does is kind, going back to the workers at home. When I come home, the house is clean. Is she my maid? Absolutely not. She's the Lord's servant. What do you do kind? What do you do to go out of your way to be kind? Now, guys, let me, let me, let me talk to you a minute, okay? In the coming weeks, if a girl is kind to you, don't go... I understand that. I'd be kind to me too if I were you. Don't do that! (laughs) If a woman tries to implement being kind and maybe giving you a random act of kindness, don't think anything other than she's godly. If you're interested, tell her. Hey, that was really nice. If there's more of that where that came from, I'm interested in you. That's okay. (laughs) But don't just say... Whoa, baby. I understand. I, I, I have the, uh, the FM antenna and you're, you're, you're broadcasting on FM now. I'm picking up your... Don't do that. Just say, wow, she's a kind woman. Guys, watch for the servants, especially at the Bible study level. Watch for the girl who comes early to set up and who stays late to clean up. I mean, I'm telling you guys right now, this is a little, little revealing, but Kim and I have some tests and now you're, it's, I'm, I'm spilling it all, but that's okay. You can do this at other places. We have people over our house all the time. Girls are over our house quite often. And we're interested, especially when there's a group of girls. If there's a single girl there, it's not that big a deal because it's, it usually kind of uh, takes care of itself. But if there's a group of girls, we like to see who would help her with the dishes. Who would talk to the kids? Who offers those little acts of kindness? She's awfully revealing of a woman's character when she expresses kindness. Now, guys, before you get comfortable, God commands that you are to be agathos as well. You're to be kind as well. But this is one of the jewels of a woman. She's kind. A kaleidoscope of kindness, all sorts of kindness. Well, lastly, in this little list we've developed on qualities of a righteous woman to realize and recognize is a softness to submission. You know, workers at home is probably one of the biggest ones to to take. Softness to submission, literally in the Greek where it says here, subject or submissive to our own husbands, this is one of the hardest to understand. We're going to unpack the nuances of this in the rest of our time together. What does it mean to be submissive? And this is one of those areas, remember we started out in the beginning saying these were stupid instructions that should be so obvious? 
The problem is, this is very obvious in the New Testament. Very obviously laid out. But few women and few men, gentlemen, have studied it to the extent that they understand the concept biblically and can implement both the submissive side and the leadership side to glorify God in their roles. The softness to submission. I've been telling you for a few weeks that this whole passage is a target for the modern, modern feminist uh, movement. Worker home is particularly offensive, but that's kind of like one hand with fingernails on a chalkboard and telling a woman that she's to be submissive to her own husband when the Holy Spirit outlines that, that's the other hand coming up on the chalkboard that makes the feminists go crazy and say, see, Christians are there to oppress women. It's not only the feminists, though, who balk at this idea. There's some women in the church, there's some women, I'm sure, in this room who say, come on, it's outdated. Come on, that was for a long time ago in a faraway place. That was for them back then, you know, when uh, women didn't go to school. They just had aprons on all the time. Well, i got news for you. This concept of submission is not based on the New Testament. Oh, it's fully elucidated there, but it's not based on there. In fact, it's not based in the last half of the Old Testament. In fact, it's not based in the Chronicles or the Kings or the historical books. You won't find it for the first time in Deuteronomy. In fact, it's not in the last part of Genesis. You've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Turn over there for a moment. The very beginning of God's creation, the Holy Spirit begins outlining what it means to be submissive and what it means to be the kephale, the head, the leader. In chapter 2, you know what's going on. In chapter 1, he explains the... the um, uh, creation Chapter 2 gives a lot fuller detail, beginning with that sixth day. If you look down in verse... Um, uh, let's go to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. Stop right there. I love that. I put that in my wedding services. You see, all the time, he says, God created this, he made it good. God created this, he made it good. God created this, he made it and called it good. But here in the uh, the scripture, it says, God looked at his creation and something was not good. What was not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. So God said, here it is, underline a highlight, a star, do whatever you do in your Bible. I will make, who will make? God. I will make him the man, Adam, a helper suitable to him. Now, the Hebrew word suitable means of the same kind, corresponding to. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, well here's what happened. Go on to verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and out of the, every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And, uh, whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. Now, picture this. I don't know what it looked like exactly, but use your sanctified imagination. Adam and the Lord sitting up on an embankment. All the animals parading by. Cow. Okay, it's a cow. God said, what do you want to end up? Long neck, mm, giraffe. Okay, giraffe. And he's naming all these animals, but no, Adam notices something. There was a male and a female giraffe. A male and a female elephant. A male and a female lion. Verse 20, man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable to him. What do you mean? Based on God's creative order. He made it in the animal kingdom, and he would make it certainly in a a couple verses in the human kingdom. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned it into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. One of the joys that I found in studying Hebrew in seminary was this passage. All the guys of seminary know that this is one of those fun passages. The English doesn't capture it. Here's what you read in English in verse 23. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew doesn't have exclamation points, but it does have ways of, of uh, relaying emotion that are greater than just the text on the page. And if you're reading this, what Adam is saying, Wow! Unbelievable! What a fox! This is mine? You're kidding, Lord. She is mine? I've been looking at all these animals with, with their... And this is mine? Wow! He was overwhelmed. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is mine. This is my rib. So guys, you can go up to the women and say, Excuse me, are you my... No, don't do that. Are you my rib? She shall become or be called woman. Isha. That's ish, man. Isha, man's counterpart. Woman. Because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I take, you the, uh, I take you back there to Genesis, and I take the time to do that to tell you this. A woman's submission and, and a subordinate position to a man is not based on culture. It's not based on the New Testament time. It's based on how male and female, from the animal kingdom all the way to his crown jewel of his creation, man. So what do you mean by that? Well, he created woman to come alongside and help the man. Not, listen, not to do everything for the man. That's why you hire a maid. This is quite different. Helper means she's involved in the same cause, going the same direction, because they are, the text said what? One flesh. However, you need to understand this a little more fully. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. God's created the whole world around the functions of order and hierarchy. In other words, there's spheres of authority that have been placed by God in every area of life. Three main institutions are the arenas of God's authority. You know what they are? The family, the church, and the state. So what do you mean by the church and the state? Well, in Romans 13, 1 and 2, uh, Paul tells us that we're to submit to the state. We're to obey the, the, the laws. You know, the Living Bible, which takes a tremendous amount of criticism, gives great insight here. Uh, and I agree that the Living Bible is not a great translation of the Bible, but Ken Taylor actually uh, transcribed or, or fashioned the Living Bible so he could read it to his children. And in, in the Living Bible, I love this with Luke. Uh, it says in, in Romans 13, Obey the policeman. That gets the idea across. Anyone in authority, you honor and obey. I'm already trying to teach Luke. When we're, we were at, where was it, Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, the other day, and uh, um, we were sitting in there, and here came... Uh, a policeman in his uniform and I, I said Luke there's a policeman he's in charge he's the, he, he helps us with the law he takes care he protects us and so he went up and said hi Mr. Policeman it was all great as he left we saw the guy get in his fire truck and drive off so <laughs> I was very embarrassed as this, this guy was a great guy he's a he just said oh thank you son he was all happy and he's probably thinking this guy's dad's an idiot so, <laughs> So there's the government. Also, there's the church. God has called for there to be order, order and submission in the church. In 1 Timothy, you guys think that's a little bit too funny. <laughs> in 1 Timothy 2, um, there's order uh, laid out in the church there. By the way, it appeals there to creation again saying that men are to lead in the past, pastors and elders in the church based on creation. And if you go to 2 Corinthians 13, it says, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 rather, it talks about the fact that uh, it was the woman who was deceived, but the man who made a choice. So the man is responsible for the spiritual care of the church. So the state, there's order, submission and authority. The, the uh, church, there's order, submission and authority. And there is the same thing in a husband and wife relationship. And we find that here in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 22. Let me show you the character. You might want to just kind of jot some of these down as I work through this. This is the character of a woman's submission to her husband. The character of a woman's submission to her husband. 
It's very simple. It's very easy to understand. It's very well laid out. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Then there's this little phrase, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. The word there, subject, is hupotasso. It means to be subordinate to. It means to be in a position where you're looking at someone else who's in charge. And the word kephale is the word head. That's who men are supposed to be in a marriage relationship. What does this verse 22 tell us? It's a serious... Your, your submission to your husband, girls, is as serious as your submission... To Christ. That's how serious it is. It's as serious as your submission to Jesus Christ as a Christian. Look back at 22. Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. This isn't optional. There are no exception clauses here. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the, of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. By the way there, that word Savior, men... Uh, it doesn't tell you and me that we're the Savior of our wives. It just says we're to love them like Christ loved us. What did it take for Christ to be the Savior? He died for His bride. That's the same sacrifice required of us. In other words, for women, it's based on Christ's role and His relationship to His bride, the church. A woman's submission to her husband is based on Christ's role and relationship to His bride, the church. Verse 24. But as the church is, hupotasso, subject to Christ, also the wives ought to be to their husbands in what they want, right? In what they choose, right? In what? In everything. No exceptions, no escape clauses. Except this, women. This doesn't mean that you follow a man into sin. This doesn't mean that you cover his irresponsibility. It doesn't mean you, you uh, uh, have to live with a man who's being physically abusive, who's abusing his own leadership. But if he's just a, a jerk, doesn't give you an escape clause. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her. We covered all this a few tapes ago, by the way, guys, into the kind of love we're supposed to have for our Christian wives. That He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, uh, this is familiar territory, we just read it, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What does that mean? Men, you have a tremendous responsibility before the Lord to lead the way Christ leads his church. I never advertised for myself, but let me tell you guys, get the tape and memorize it. Those weren't my words. That's going through this text and talking about what the Lord has for a man and how he's supposed to lead in love. Verse 33, back to the woman. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she, different word than submit, she respects her husband. This is from the word phobia that she fears and honors Him. It's done with the right attitude, in other words. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. I've alluded to it. It doesn't mean the wife is inferior at all. Women aren't inferior to men. It doesn't mean that the wife is to be passive and surrender all her rights and all of her joy and all of her identity when she becomes a wife. It doesn't mean that a husband is to stifle his wife's creativity, gifts, or her individuality. It doesn't mean that the wife is to do everything the husband demands. She's the live-in maid. It does not mean that the wife is to enable the husband's sin and irresponsibility. And it doesn't mean that the wife is to live with an abusive or dangerous man. At that level, the church should be very involved, ladies. 
God forbid that it should ever get that far. The attitude is critical. It comes down to really uh, two issues, and that's honoring and obeying. Now, the question in your minds right now is this. What if, what if my husband is an unbeliever? Well, can I tell you now is the time to begin asking that question? Not then. Now is the time to make sure. Let me beg you not to get yourself in such a situation as dating or pursuing an unbeliever. And we'll talk more about that beginning next week. Second, the submission of a wife to her husband is not based on the relationship with him at all. It's not based on the husband's relationship to the Lord at all. A wife's submission to her husband is based on her relationship and obedience to Christ. It's a point of obedience to Him. There's two elements here, honoring and obeying. Now, I find it very interesting that honoring and obeying, the attitude and the act, are both uh, elucidated even more when you get to the next category of relationships in Ephesians 6, which is children to their parents. Very quickly, 1 Peter chapter 3. You've got to see this. This is crucial in understanding submission because the question is asked, well, what if my husband doesn't honor the Lord? Should I honor and submit and honor and obey him? Well, yes. That's not my idea. That's the Lord's. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives be hupotasso, subordinate, submissive, to your own husbands. We'll come back to your own husbands in a minute. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, what does that mean? They're unbelievers. How do you know that? Look at the next phrase. They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe. Here's what submission looks like. Are you ready? You're chaste and respectful Behavior. Chaste has to do with your attitude again. I mean, your actions again. Respectful has to do with obey us again with your attitude. So it's both an act and an attitude. How do you do that? Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. It doesn't say don't do that. It just says don't let your beauty be only that, merely that. But let the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality, here it is, girls, of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which is precious in the sight of her husband? No. should be, but maybe, is it? maybe it isn't. It's precious in the sight of who? Of God. For in this way, in the former times, holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves. They adorned themselves with this kind of attitude. Being submissive to their own husbands. It's not cultural. He's going way back in the Old Testament from that. And, and ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament culture and the Old Testament culture were not identical. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Wow. You have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. I've tried to tell Kim, would you just address me as Lord, but she, she won't do that. Um, I've never tried to do that, okay? The attitude there is this, though. Respect. Honoring of a superior. Not superior in essence, but superior in role. You say, what does that mean? Uh, I played uh, uh, a couple of instruments growing up in, in junior high and high school band. One of them I played one year in summer band because it was kind of fun was the baritone um, baritone is kind of fun. You got to hold it and um, blow and make great sounds. Well, I was average, and we had this this, this uh, concert at the end of the end of the summer. And I remember they had we all played a piece of music. I went first, second, and third chair baritone. I made third chair. I was the third best. I think there were probably three of us. But you know what was really cool? Is as we pa- practiced this piece, it was a Tchaikovsky piece, I still remember it to this day, there was this one part where uh, the band director would have us play individually. And you know what? The best person, it was, a, it was this girl playing baritone, this best girl in the class playing this instrument. When she played her part, it was nice, but it kind of sounded funny. It was just high and it was kind of 
But when you added the first and the second chair, it was, it was a two-part harmony. It sounded really good. And when you added all three, it produced a full chord that sounded amazing. And I loved playing that part. That's the idea and that's the picture. You're a part of chord. Well, uh, the, the, you're part of a chord, ladies, that the Lord has played in the institution of marriage and you're to play second chair. Not in essence, just in your role. By the way, not to be frightened by any fear in this because you're trusting the Lord. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. You know what that understanding way means? You better remember, guys, that they're called to submit and they're called to submit to you. God forbid I think about my precious wife and the fact that she has to submit to me. You know what that makes me do? It makes me get on my knees and say, Lord, let me be who I need to be because I'm not worthy of any kind of submission or respect. So the heart of submission is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, we can't get into all of that. I'm going to give you some resources to study that. We would be here the rest of the year if we studied all that's in 1 Peter 3. Let me give you some implications, can I? Just to kind of wrap our time up. Some implications for single women. You say, Rick, you're talking about being uh, submissive to your husbands, your own husband. How does that attach itself in application to me? Well, here's a couple of things. Learn how to develop a gentle and quiet spirit, ladies. Learn how to develop a gentle and a quiet spirit. How do you do that? By study, prayer, and discipleship. Learn to develop a gentle and quiet spirit by study, prayer, and discipleship. You need to study what it means in the Scriptures, pray about your own application of that, and be discipled by someone who is that, an older woman in your life. Another way that you can apply this is to learn submission, girls. Learn submission at every level possible before you're married. Learn submission at every level possible before you're married. You say, what do you mean? What, what, kind of, what kind of submission is that? Well, obedience to God's Word. If God says it, obey it. Obedience to your parents. That's a little tricky when you get out of, school, out of the house. I know that, but you should honor and obey them as well. Your teachers. Honor and obey your teachers. You know, if your teacher says, this project is due this day and you blow it off, What's to keep you from saying, well, we ought to have dinner at 6 or 7, and you say, I don't want to do that. It's the same issue. Learn what that means to fulfill your responsibilities. Pastors and elders in the church, learn to follow and be submissive to them as they follow the Lord. Bosses at work, are you submissive at work? Are you a good employee? Referees, we could even say. All of these are submitting not to the human institutions, but they're submitting to God who's behind all authority. Listen, even if the authority fails. Can I give you another point? Amy's got some of these uh, written for us down so you can write these down. Study and understand your roles and goals as a Christian wife. I want to suggest a few books. These ought to fill your library. Guys, these ought to fill your library as well. Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by Piper and Grudem. It's a great book. A lot of essays in there. It's a book you ought to own on your shelf. I've tried to list these in order. If I were going to buy these in order, this is the order I would buy them. Okay, Gentlemen, this is a great resource for you as well. Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Secondly, The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. Uh, my wife's been through that several times. I've been going through it in my study of this. It's really blessed me. Gentlemen, as crazy as it sounds, you ought to be able to walk over to the book shack and look at that, buy that book, and when they look at you and say, who are you buying this for? Say, I don't know. Yet. But this is what I want to look for someday. Thirdly, you get uh, Different by Design by our own pastor, John MacArthur. Lays out all of the roles and essences and, and goals of men and women. And if you really want to dig in, this is a, the last one is only if you want to roll your sleeves up and dig in. Uh, the Pauline Doctrine of Male Headship by James Bordwine. It's going to be a little heavier. There's going to be a little bit of Greek in there, but it's very readable if you want to really study the specific passages regarding men and women. The whole thing is laid out just for that. Study it. 
The reason that people don't apply this is because they don't understand it, ladies. Be a studier so you know your role and your goal. Also, you don't want to fall victim to submitting to a man in a relationship who's not your husband. It's to submit to your own husband. Girls, don't ever think that some guy who's dating you can call you to submit to him. He's not your husband. However, you ought to see if he's a good follower and if you can follow him. If he would be a good person to submit to. In our culture, in our situation, you have a choice. Make that choice wisely. If you find you're having trouble following a guy's leadership now, it's an indication that he's not the one for you or there's probably a problem with your own heart. We can say this. Pick your husband carefully. Pick your husband carefully. Better to wait ten more years, girls, than to marry a guy who is going to be an incredibly difficult man to submit to because once you say, I do, then you are to submit. Mom used to say, Ricky, every date's a potential mate. It's true. It's very true. Be careful who you date. Now, in all this, I've talked about submission. What is submission? It's two, two things, honoring and obeying. Honoring and obeying, that's submission. But, men, we should be asking them to honor and obey our leadership as it's riveted in the truth of God's Word, not our own ideology, okay? Remember, girls, that all the, all the leadership you're ever going to submit to is going to fail at some level or another, especially your husband. Expect that and prepare your heart for that. And remember this. All that we've said in terms of submission has to do with the difference in roles. And listen, look up. It has nothing to do with your equality or your essence before our Creator. Nothing. God doesn't like men more than women. I'm proof of that, okay? God loves and created men and women for His glory and His pleasure. The issue isn't of equality. You're equal before the Lord. But of role and how you play out in that relationship. So I encourage you to uh, jump on that train of study and really fully understand what the Lord means by that. Let's pray together. Father, this has been a long and very arduous and encouraging trip through this passage in Titus. Thank you for laying it out for us. I pray your mercy on our lives as we apply these principles to your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.